everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 123, Chaotic Neutral, recorded December 8th, 2013, and brought to you by Elements OP Productions, elementsop.com. Welcome back once again, everybody, to the Linux show that isn't about Linux, but it's about life in the context of Linux. I honestly don't even know what chaotic neutral means, but it's a meme on the internet that I saw some time ago. Apparently, it's some sort of gaming thing. You guys maybe can. It's an alignment in Dungeons and Dragons. Ah, There's chaotic where you're either lawful or you're chaotic, so you don't obey laws. And then there's the are you a good person or an evil person? So you don't obey laws, but you're neither good nor evil. So you're a socially responsible anarchist is probably a good way to say it. I've seen that uh, that grid a number of times. Lawful good, unlawful good, neutral good, chaotic good. Right. Wait, it's lawful good, chaotic good, neutral good. Yeah, something like that. I can't remember what it is. But I remember chaotic neutral was one of them, and it fit the show to- uh, topic, so I went with that. And in case you're wondering why I'm vamping, the second the show started, Chris went away. So I'm trying to vamp, and, and it just worked, because here he is once again. And that, Chris, of course, I'm talking about is the great one, the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, everyone, how goes it today? <laughs> oh, he's not as so as back with us as I would like. But hey, we sort of heard that, and by the time it's edited down, it'll sound great. And, and alongside Chris, who we, uh, who missed the show last week, uh, we have the ever-present and stalwart Seth, the gooey kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hey, pseudo-random topic generator. How are things today? <laughs> I, just, I like saying that. I, I don't like it as a nickname because it's too long, but I just love saying that. So that's like the latest element OP meme, I guess. Maybe you could call me pseudo for short because it's like like the commander. Ooh, that's kind of interesting. Pseudo. Ooh. Um, or hey, I remember. Be, works. I remember your old uh, handle on the internet, pseudonym. So. Oh, you're going way back. Yeah, that was in my yeah. tripod website. Yes, tripod.com. My uh, my URL was pseudonym because I couldn't think of. Don't forget, it was tilde slash tilde. Yes, yes, because the slash tilde back in the old days was how you uh, designated a user directory. Uh, So it'd be the Mm -hmm. the tilde. It would be like instead of saying tripod.com slash users slash pseudonym, you could use the tilde, which uh, uh, meant users. I, I don't know if you can still use that in the bash prompt, but it was big. Uh, back in the olden days. Yeah, you can still use Tilde. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, wow, you're, you're dredging up some old stuff there. Back when I had the uh, the fondue pot, it was what I called a list of links to the cheesiest stuff on the web. Uh, things like uh, David Hasselhoff <laughs> and uh, Tarzan. And I just went and found cheesy websites, which it, in 1997 was all of them. And I compiled them Pretty into much. what I called the fondue pot. I remember the fondue pot. Yes. So, oh, you had a link. You had making, a link to the uh, Monty Python cheese skit to the transcript of it. it. Was awesome. The say that again. I don't. I didn't catch that. Monty Python. Oh, uh, the cheese, cheese skit. Yeah. Skit. Yeah. Okay. Because obviously you link to the. Yeah. Obviously, in the fondue pot, you got to have that. Yeah. Yes. It was perfect. Sorry, that's a golly man. Oh, I don't even want to say how long ago that was. I'm old now. <laughs> that was my very first website in 1990. I'm pretty sure it was 97. Um, and I had the back then. Link rings were big. 
and I had I was a member of some link ring. <laughs> okay. Anyway, oh, I remember link rings? Wow. Um, that was that was when the hot search engine of choice was Alta Vista. That's right. Good old Alta Vista. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, we just Alta did Vista our this rocked. week in history section, just right there. <laughs> um. <laughs> um. Okay. Let's let's move right on. So, uh, Chris, why don't we start with you telling us why you weren't here last week, you big slacker? Oh yeah, I'm I'm such a big slacker. No, there was a big um, a conference for uh, school districts and and public entities of such for uh, liabilities in the workplace for like bring your own devices and things. So my school district decided it was a good idea to send me and my supervisor to go learn about this in this this thing they call the internet and what it could happen for legalities and yeah, it was a great conference. Uh, I always have to laugh though when. Uh, I go to an IT conference and they're going and the staff is not prepared because uh, in two days we burned up three wireless access points, like burnt to a crisp burnt up. So I, I always have to laugh when, you know, three to four hundred people can get in a room and nuke hardware. It's fun. Yeah, what, what yeah, most I people... Go ahead, Seth. I, I was going to say, Chris, I don't know if you know, but the internet is like the next big thing in education. <laughs> it is. So... <laughs> I, I hear lots of schools are getting wired up to the thing. Um, it, it sounds yeah. like it. it. It sounds like a great thing. What a lot of people don't know about uh, access points and even he- heavy-duty geeks is they they can interfere with each other in destructive ways. Uh, a lot of times you'll see places that don't really know what they're doing, and they'll just stick an access point every five or ten feet thinking, well, that'll do it. Well, you're actually decreasing your signal when you do that because they're interfering with each, yep. each other. Then you get a bunch of geeks in. And they all go to this one conference room and they say, ah, the bandwidth in here sucks. Let me fire up my hotspot. And so now you have 600 uh, access points all in the space <laughs> of this, you know, 30 uh, uh, by 30 square foot room. And yeah, that will literally cause physical damage. And then you and get a headache later and you don't know why. Yes. Because, you know, you kind of fried your brain a little bit. <laughs> little little bacon action right there in the old cabeza. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so but the other thing I would go ahead, Chris. The other thing I was going to say about conferences that are always fun is you always get those one those one or two guys that are up there making their spiel, their speech of what, one way or another, and there's always one or two guys in the audience that always ask a question that makes the speaker look foolish or not quite sure. You know, you, you come at a question totally off the beaten path that he wasn't ready for. I love being that guy, and I did it twice. Uh, it see, I I, smile. I I hate that guy. Why would you do that? Just just to show that how you're superior you are? Why would no. you do that? What's no, no, point? no. No, it was he was talking about passwords and how you need to have secure passwords and they need to be over 10 and alphanumeric with symbols. And so I just asked a simple question, well what about haystacking? <laughs> and he looked at me and he kind of crossed his eyes a minute and went, "I don't know much about haystacking." In other and words, I've on. never heard the phrase. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, everybody else in the crowd knew exactly what I was talking about because we were talking about haystacking passwords at the last conference six months ago. So, yeah, it was. I didn't expect him to do the whole uh moment, but it, when it happened, it was hilarious. Not everybody is a uh, uh, disciple of the great Steve Gibson, like we three have. No, not everybody. <laughs> so, Seth. Uh, 
I understand that you've first, maybe for the first time in your life, experienced this thing called winter there in Texas. Well, you know, I just hated it because it, well, I mean, you know, okay, it got below freezing, which it has been colder here in Texas, but I'm just so used to not being at home. Like, you know, when I was a little kid and never went anywhere, it was no big deal. But now I'm in my car all the time and I spent like 48 stray hours at my place. And I finally, uh, Saturday night, I was like, you know, I ate like an hour ago, but I have to go somewhere. And so I went to Taco Bell. Not that there's anything great about Taco Bell, except for the fact it wasn't located at my house. And I was so stir crazy. I was just ready to like, I mean, you know, I wouldn't care if there had been two feet of ice on the roads. I was getting in my little cube and I was going somewhere. Um, but the roads were fine by that point because, you know, we'd had enough sunlight to make the roads passable. And it wasn't as bad here as it was further west. But, yeah, it's cold in Texas. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've I talked about this before. In Texas, you don't get snow, you get ice. And right now there's, where I'm from originally, there's about five inches of just solid ice on the roads and it's bringing down trees and power lines and and large portions of the state have been without power for three and four days so it you know you can laugh about texans uh and not handling snow but when when it's bringing down 200 year old oak trees uh that's that's a significant winter event yeah Yeah, and the other cool thing is we had a like a holiday at work because our office is like, if the main school district is closed, we're closed. And so DISD was closed on Friday. So our office was closed on Friday. So my understanding is that's a company holiday when it happens. So that was like, sweet, sweet. I got a great job. So not quite up to my education level perks, but not bad. (laughs) Not bad at all. Um, What do you think would happen, Seth, if you had 42 below zero? I would move to Texas. That's <laughs> well, just so everyone would know, if, if you're not from Montana, and we were the coldest spot on the globe there for a couple of days. Um, there was nothing colder than Montana and southern Canada at right around 40 to 45 below zero without wind. So, yeah, we were cold the last couple of days. And, uh, yeah, just before that, when I was at my conference, we ended up with a, the, the pre- the I would say maybe the the kissing cousin to your guys' storm that you had down there in, in Texas, and we ended up with uh, sleet for about six hours of sleet, and then three to seven inches of snow in areas, and then uh, yeah, the the roads were not very fun, and that's why, mm-hmm. uh, like I was saying to the the guys earlier, I just about didn't make it back from my little conference. Um, Normally, the trip that that would be would be a six-hour drive, and uh, it took two days and a trip into a ditch before I made it home. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was – the roads up here were almost impassable. Um, you were saying that you went to Taco Bell. That's, you know, not too bad. Uh, in that tri- in that driving distance, um, in – with the way the conditions we had up here, uh, you you would have been probably in the ditch because I know I counted three or four tractor trailers and about fifteen cars in the ditch on my way home. So, yeah, winter in Montana sucks. It, it Sounds does. like it. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty <laughs> chilly here in in Georgia too. It got down to like fifty three degrees today, and it was 
pretty ragged. I'm, uh, you know, the, we sent out survival uh, teams uh, just to make sure that everybody could get back <laughs> home okay. Oh. All right. In the interest, I feel for you, but I can't reach you. <laughs> in the interest of keeping this less than a six-hour show, I'm going to leave that right there for warm up and jump right into the copious listener feedback we have here starting with joe who writes in with a whole lot of questions um he says i'm wondering what makes a linux distribution light other than desktop environment and lighter versions of applications for example lxde is lighter than kde slash numeric is lighter than LibreOffice calc midori is lighter than firefox but are there other uh, accommodations that made for old hardware rather than limited ram uh, and then he goes on to his reasons that, that he's going, so, but I think that's the crux of his question, so let's just answer it right there. No, that's what makes a difference. They they use apps that are designed for uh, less RAM and lower hardware specs. Therefore, it's a lightweight mm-hmm. distribution. I'm sorry, yeah, it's not a better yeah, answer that. than that. Yeah, the lightweight distributions of today would have been the heavyweight distributions of a few years ago. Just has, you know, that processor creep and technology creep continues to ease forward. Right. The other thing he brings up is a, the question about flash performance. Um, and that's, it's horrible anywhere, um, <laughs> especially on lower, especially on lower end hardware. Uh, flash is, uh, is a, is old technology that has been band-aided together till we get to the point where we are right now. Um, and I hate to say it, but there really isn't any alternative for Flash. Well, yet. Flash, the later later versions of Flash and on later versions of hardware allow for hardware acceleration so that the, the software right. isn't doing all the math. But if you've got the older hardware that doesn't support it or the older Flash that doesn't support it, you're out of luck. And, and by older, I mean yep. uh, 2010 is probably when that switch was flipped in Flash. So anything older than that mm-hmm. um, is is you know is it just can't do it like for example the my home theater pc that i use um the the latest version of flash doesn't run on it and the f- version of flash that does run on it just because it's older hardware um doesn't support uh hardware encoding uh decoding actually therefore i can't really use flash on it at all yeah um, so yeah, no matter what's going to happen, Flash is going to be horrible. Um, usually, I would say find a way to use something other than Flash. Um, hopefully, HTML5 takes up and takes over for Flash, and which does a little better on lower end hardware. Yeah, uh, HTML5. It, uh, what most people don't realize, Flash is a virtual machine in just the same way that Java is a virtual machine. Yep. Uh, so you're actually running a synth- synthesized environment there when you run flash and there's you know just like running a vm uh you know uh, on virtual box or or uh vmware uh you that's there's a significant overhead with that and performance is always an issue flat uh, html5 is native uh the the hardware supports it natively the software supports it natively there's no abstraction layer there so you get much better performance on native hardware but it's got to be hardware that's new enough to mm-hmm. support the native uh instruction set Right. Well, there you go. 
And uh, I think he asked a lot of stuff there. He he actually broke his question down into nine parts. Part the first. (laughs) But I'm not going to go read all, because I think we answered all his questions. Um, But he did add add one. At what point is a CPU or other hardware considered old? Yes, a Pentium 4 is 10 years old, but does it operate... Uh, but it does operate at 2.4 billion clock cycles per second. Wouldn't old be more like a Pentium 2 at 450 megahertz? Uh, I know there's an archi- architecture discussion in there, but it's above my head. Um, I would say because of the architecture differences, anything in the um, the i series is going to be new. And, and and that's the Intel line. In, in the AMD line, they have their own equivalent of it. But that's the 64-bit chip. So when you move to 32-bit chips, you it, it's not half your performance. It's, it's more like a, a square root of your performance at that point. I think the Core 2 Duo, I mean, I know that's kind of old, but I would still consider that current. I mean, it's a lot slower, but I would still consider that current. Yeah, I, the Core 2 Duo is the minimum, the, the the beginning of the modern age. I'll give you that. See, personally, I think it's more of a floating point. Um, I don't think you can really say any hardware is really old or new because as, to, as our software level has increased, the hardware has increased with it. And so in old hardware could be, yeah, your Pentium 4 that's 10 years old, but if you're running lower-end hard software requirement on it, then it would still perform at a new level, but yet be an old hardware. So I think you have to look at it in both ways. Not only is it the hardware, is it what year was the hardware given birth, but yet also what operating, what software set are you running on it? Because, you know, like yeah, uh, I mean, Pentium uh, 4. Right, a P4 running Windows 95 still screams. Uh, yep. If you're running the, or soft, even, the software that was designed to run on it, then you get the performance of that. You know, I've I've made that uh, case many times about the the misuse of the word obsolescence. If it mm-hmm. still does what it does, then it's not obsolete. Well, that also goes to like the the atom processors. You know, as far as speed goes, those would be considered obsolete if you just went on clock cycles. Right. The atoms and and the smaller ones that are inside your routers. But as far as functionality. They still perform at their adequate speed, so they would not be considered old, even though they are old speeds. All right. I think. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question, which comes from Nordic, used to be known as Mike. Recent name change it says, "Dear EDL crew, thanks for helping with the search last week. I didn't even know where to begin looking, although I should have Googled uh, or which search were worth a darn. I did notice something on the LPI website that caught my eye. If you take the CompTIA exam called CompTIA Linux Plus, powered by LPI, you can have your scores forwarded with your permission to LPI, and also get your level one LPI cert as well as your CompTIA." This allows you to go ahead and try for your level 2 LPI cert. Also, you can then forward your scores to Novell and receive a cert from them as well. And he provides a link for more information that I'll put in the notes. However, you can't do this backwards, as in the Novell, uh, get the Novell cert and then get all the others. It has to be CompTIA, then you receive everything else. You are also correct about locations to take the exams. Pearson still does them, and they have a search box to find a testing area in your area. A testing area in your area. Uh, most of the ones near me were at my local community college. Thanks for the help. Lastly, 
because I'm rambling. I know that certs are good for the resume, but what about Cisco certs? Do they carry weight at all? I've heard that the A-plus cert is kind of blah now, but still nice to have. Just wondering if you had any sight, uh, insight on the Cisco certs. Thanks, Mike. But since there are so many other mics on here, may I change to Nordic, my frat nickname? <laughs> Nordic, you can be called mashed potatoes if you want. It doesn't matter to me. So Pretty much um, anything but bacon. You are right. not allowed to be called bacon or, that, or any derivative. Um, so, but yeah, uh, I, I'll speak to the Cisco thing and say, it kind of depends on which Cisco Cisco used to just have this one line of certs that were very well respected in the industry and their upper level certs are still very well respected, but they've increased and have a lot of lower level certs on individual products that they offer that they are, they are looked at good because cisco makes it very hard to be a paper tiger and we talked about that uh in previous shows uh so you really need to know your stuff to get a cisco and there is a certain uh acceptance found for pretty much any cisco's but not all cisco certs are created equal so back to you mark uh, that's true. I, I totally agree with everything you said and and cisco still pretty much runs the web uh and the things that aren't cisco are Cisco clones. That's changing. It's not as much so as it used to be. But yeah, Cisco certs on the hardware geek network administrator side is very valuable, but only there. It's a very niche subset. It's a niche subset where you can make 300000 a year, though. So, you know, that's that just depends on where you need to go. There, no matter what software, what OS, no matter what's going on, you're always going to need the connective backbone to run it. And those are the guys, the Cisco wizards, who can do all that. And I'm I'm pretty good with Linux, and I'm pretty good with a few other things, but the, the, the Cisco language still boggles me. Um, it's tough. Hmm. It's very tough. Oh, my gosh. If you don't use it, there's you you can't unless you're somebody who can just you know like photographic memory you really need to use it and whereas in a lot of ways a microsoft certification is a good showing that hey i've got an intro to this cisco certification doesn't mean hey i know my way around cisco it means I'm freaking certified one bad mamma jamma. Uh, probably about the cleanest way to say that. And uh, I can do uh, command line voodoo on any router you may throw at me. So, yeah. um, you know, it's Cisco certs mean something. And the thing about Cisco is that over time, they raise the passing bar on their test. Um, say whenever their test used to run like, I think the worst you could get was a hundred and the best was a thousand and you used to 600 used to be passing. Well, after a while they raised it to like 650 and then up to 700. And so, you know, uh, it's one of those things they keep raising the bar on what it means to be a Cisco certified, um, internet genius. Uh, yeah, there's, if I remember correctly, there's uh CCNE Cisco certified network engineer, and uh, CCNA, Cisco Certified Network Administrator, are the two most common ones. Uh, right. the, engi- the engineer is the 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 dark wizard overlord uh, one. Well, no, the CCIE <laughs> is the is the master whom all must bow before or suffer his <laughs> wrath. So, uh, and then you know, and they've increased to where like they've specialized. You can have a CCIE in a few different topics, and those are the those are the dark overlords of the uh, of the network routing tables. Yeah, and speaking of network routing tables, you got 
you got to be able to do binary calculations in your head, you know, that, that kind of stuff. You know, if, if you can't build a, a router table, uh, on a post-it note, you're not ready for a C C I E. Yeah. And if you can't subnet mask hung over after having been awake for seven straight days and you don't, you can't figure out your subnet masking, you're not ready to take it. <laughs> I mean, it's, you've got to know that stuff. Like, you know, I can figure out subnet mask with a piece of paper and draw out the thing, but you need to know those. Like, how well can you say your ABCs? That's how well you need to be able to do subnet masking if you want to be a Cisco wizard. And that's hard math. I mean, I've done yeah, some it of it. It's hard math. The and particularly, let's not even talk about IP6. In fact, let's just not. Let's move on to the next. Uh, 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 what's the thing? Email from Nigel, who weighs in on the Internet's aging infrastructure. Uh, he says, hi, the section of your last show about the Internet's reliance on outdated technology was very interesting, if a little disturbing. I take a slightly different view about the fact that the people who design the existing infrastructure are gradually fading away. Yes, they know how they... Um, they created what we have today, but uh, taking that to, to be the way it should be done rather than simply the way it was done may result in any weakness being perpetuated into the future. Uh, the fact that an application has run trouble-free for months or even years doesn't mean that its logic is not full of accidents waiting to happen. I've uncovered flaws like that in other people's code, and worse, I've also found them in code I wrote myself a long time ago and sweated blood to get what I thought at the time was right. So maybe it's time to take a look at how the internet fundamentally works with fresh eyes. We clearly can't take it down to start again, but we could... Uh, I just lost my thing. We could, but we can't. But it should be possible to identify flaws and agree on an evolution path that is correct uh, that to correct its weaknesses. Any thoughts on that, guys? Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Way to put me on the spot. <laughs> no, I mean, I from not listening to the show last week since I haven't had a chance to. Um, I'm getting an idea what you guys talked about, and I guess that yeah, I mean. Trying to reinvent the wheel is tough, no matter how you slice it. Um, do we re do we take it? Every do we do what you're saying and reinvent the wheel and see if we can make it better, or do we band aid it? That's that's a question that everybody has, no matter what they're doing. Yeah, and, and often, particularly in code, this is a little less so in, in hardware. Uh, it's easier to write code than to rewrite code. So people will just say, well, all right, we'll just start over again and, and start from scratch. And, and then you just build in new problems uh, mm -hmm. rather than understanding what the old problems were. Uh, I remember when, when uh, the Mozilla guys decided to rewrite Netscape. It took them three releases to get as good as it was before they started rewriting it. Um, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that's exactly um, uh, analogous. Analogous? I'm having a hard time with my words today. Uh, in the hardware side of things, in the routing and that sort of stuff, I suspect maybe that what what is in place now is not the best way to do it, but I don't know that finding a better way is necessarily going to be more effective. I don't, I don't, you know, because sometimes elegant is just mm -hmm. elegant. It's not better. Does that make sense? Right. I'm rambling. Right. Well, no, and like, okay, let's say that we could rewrite this software and gain an extra 5% performance boost, which let's say we can get a, gain a 2% performance boost. Is that worth the 100,000 hours it's going to take 
everybody to put together that and to make it better. So there's a kind of a law of diminishing returns. And then as well as he makes a great point, just because something is the way it is, doesn't mean that that's the best way to do it. I remember, um, you know, Steve Gibson was talking, I've heard about it on security. Now this, uh, encryption protocol that has been out for years and people have looked at it and thought it was this ultra secure thing. Somebody like broke it down and decompiled it and found a flaw in it. And it had been released and major and lots of people used it. I think it was blowfish something. Um, I don't know if y'all remember hearing about that, but you know, that's, but it works now it's good enough and it works. And so, you know, we can, we can use this and it meets our needs now. Uh, how much money is it going to cost to replace it? And then with what we replace it, will it, how long will it take it to get as much? You know, we've got, we've invested all of this money in this infrastructure that, and what we're finding out is the redundancy built into the internet to make it, you know, cause it was supposed to survive a nuclear blast. That was the whole function. That was the whole reason right. that it was born. Well, that, there's a lot of redundancy that has to be built in. Well, we're finding out that the way we did that, there's a lot of security flaws um, that come along with that. So how much is it going to take to fix that? And is it worth it? It's kind of the ongoing question. We ought to do a show sometime on the history of the Internet and how what we consider a technological marvel is a political creation. Um, mm-hmm. That could be interesting. Maybe we could get Al Gore since he invented it. <laughs> Uh, let's move sorry right I, I just now. loved <laughs> i just love to throw that out there i know steve, he meant it has a joke but still well actually what he meant was he was he co-authored the initiative that made the internet open to the public in the in the early 90s but the it was blown out of proportion to be i invented the internet and i know yeah, and that's why it's fun yeah another so because, political construct and, yeah. and dan quayle can't spell potato so you know moving on and he's no jack kennedy either <laughs> yes so. <laughs> okay so uh steven asks about uefi he says hey guys recently i've noticed that a number of forums and podcasts related to linux have been mentioning that uefi uefi and linux don't play nice together can you expand on this at all if true how do you see the developers dealing with this in the future since most modern motherboards are uefi Longtime listener love the show thanks steven um so we we have talked about this, and Stephen, if you went back and listened to every episode, all 122 previous episodes, uh, you would no 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 about this. skip like the first three or four. <laughs> so, <laughs> but to save you that trouble, um, I will just say that it's uh, many of the um, complaints about UEFI and Linux are are exaggerated at best. Um, uh, so. I think you may be conflating two different things there. By the way, I got called on using the word conflating. Somebody said, is that even a real word? So I had to go to the dictionary app on my phone and say, see, it's a real word. People people <laughs> often think I use words that aren't real. So the UEFI, UEFI is essentially the secure bootloader in Windows. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. in in BIOS, it's it's a well, it's like the BIOS replacement, right? It's the finally it's a, right. It's a it's a secured BIOS replacement. That's that's the way to put it. Uh, so it, it's not BIOS, and and so it's a a spec that is. I don't even know if it's ratified yet. I mean, I know manufacturers are using it, but I'm not even sure the spec is ratified. I'd have to go look and see. Uh, but yeah, so that's part of the reason that that people have 
have trouble playing nice with it. Uh, but also there was some some talk about how Windows certified Windows 8 devices would have a a locked UEFI so that um, so that they would only run certified operating systems so that Linux couldn't be run on those. And it was a secure thing, right? So you buy a Windows laptop from Dell or a Windows tablet. It's configured in such a way that you can't put anything but Windows on it. Well, you bought it with Windows on it. You probably want Windows on it. It's a security thing to keep some bug from rewriting your code, some uh, some uh, rootkit or something like that. It's a good thing. But the Internet being what the Internet is, people kind of went nuts about it and said Microsoft and Intel hate Linux. But all you got to do is go in there and turn the dang thing off. Move on with your life. Yeah. Um, it's a switch. Yes or no? Do you want to use UEFI secure? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, so anyway, that's that's really all there is to that. But also, there's been some some um, movement on the Linux Foundation and also uh, the Canonicals part to create a signed kernel. And I don't think any of them, either of them, have it yet because it's kind of designed where the way you get it signed is by spending seven trillion dollars um mm-hmm. so there that those things haven't happened yet but it's i don't think it's going to be an issue yes it's an issue right now because it's still new it's not going to be an issue mm-hmm. in the future but it's not as bad of an issue as it was because some of the things there were flaws with the uefi implementation that have been addressed and then there have uh there's been programming workarounds and fixes in the linux kernel to take care of some incompatibility so there's still a deal but it's not a big deal would be how I would say. Yeah. yeah. It's a short lived issue is what I would say. Um, because the first devices, I mean, even some of the windows certified windows, UEFI devices still bricked the operating system, even though they were certified Microsoft. The yeah, was it, I think Toshiba. it was Sony Toshiba. Yeah. They Toshiba had a couple, they had a thing that looked for a file on the, on the win 32 directory. And if it wasn't yep. there, kicked you out that's not secure that's stupid uh yeah. but that's how they they quote unquote certified the installation so it's going to be a growing uefi is going through growing pants right. pains it's a toddler you know it's chewing on the furniture trying to figure out its way through life um right. it's not ready for, i don't think it's ready for prime time but nothing ever is that's computer driven so 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 um, uefi thanks to the the strangers at uh, wikia.archlinux.org i know stands for unified extensible firmware interface so that's a replacement for bios but part of UFE, uefi is what's called secure boot and that's what has people up in arms secure yep. boot secure boot is just one component of uefi and in its current implementation it's pretty busticated but there's a nice big off switch. Problem solved. Yeah. And, I, you know, you just in the sake of fairness, because, you know, we're all about fair and impartial here. Um, you know, if you buy an iPad or an iDevice, they lock their bootloader. Um, most mobile carriers, they lock their bootloaders, too. So, you know, and if Microsoft wants to sell and the the big deal was Microsoft was a software company demanding that hardware companies lock their stuff in order to sell their software. But, you know, if, if Microsoft wants to produce their line of hardware and they lock it, well, you know, then it's the marketplace choice. Do you want to buy it or not? So, yeah, good point. First thing I do when I get any yeah. phone is unlock the bootloader. Um, 
so that I can root it and ROM it. And you know, the same thing would be you get a you get a a Windows 8 machine that's got this Windows certified logo on it. You just unlock the bootloader, same way you yeah. unlock a phone. Yeah. Okay, moving right along. Brian has an idea that sucks. He says, hey, Mark, Uh-oh. Seth, and Chris, I love your show. Seth and Chris, you are great at making Linux more accessible to the masses. Myself being Sweet. an extreme novice, hoping to one day be more a, a more competent novice. I've been intrigued with your coffee talk creation. I've been uh, thinking of creating my own. Yeah, this guy, I love this. My ideas so far have been focused on creating a vacuum without the use of electric pumps. I might end up trying the reverse one-way piston and valves of a bicycle pump for creating a mild vacuum required to filter the coffee. My first thoughts were to create a vacuum by emptying a full water container using gravity, but after some research, I realized that the elevation change needed to be about 40 feet, no matter the geometry. Otherwise, the force of gravity on the water is not enough to overcome the uh, 14.7 PSI atmospheric pressure. I do not have a spare shop vac to create a vacuum pressure, and I like the idea idea of a silent system so I do not disturb my neighbors in my apartment building. Listening to your most recent episode, 121, got me thinking about the gravity idea again. Food, beverage-grade, vacuum-rated tubing can be purchased pretty cheap online. I've seen it for less than 25 cents a foot. So if you live on a hill or have a multi-story house, you could run about a 40 to 50 foot uh, of tubing connected to a sealed vacuum-proof vessel, half filled with water and half filled with your coffee extract. Leave only a tiny air gap at the bottom, maybe some, fi- maybe 5% of the container's volume. If you begin draining the water, um, container of water, down your vacuum tubing while replacing any drained water until the entire vacuum tubing is full of water again at least 40 feet of elevation change then you can close all the valves except the drain valve in the coffee container with the siphon created in the vacuum tubing there will be enough to overcome the vacuum as the container drains you'll be left with a container filled with nothing but the five percent of original possible air and your coffee extract the pressure will be 10% of act- atmospheric pressure since half the volume is filled with the coffee extract, i.e. approximately 27 inches of, of uh, mercury vacuum, less whatever the water vapor pressure is at that temperature. I think all of this is doable, assuming you can find the right pressure-proof container and install a three or so vacuum-safe valves to control the water in and out of the container. I'm not sure if you would then need to heat the container with a space heater or something to raise the container above the reduced boiling point of water at that pressure. Anyway, just my silly take on it. I have a uh, sketch I can send if you'd like. I'm not sure when I'll get around to building my own system, but I've been entertained by hearing about yours. Thanks for the ideas. Regards, Brian. Oh, and P.S., for fun and um, to remind you of the dangers of uh, atmospheric pressure, see the following YouTube clip where a chemistry class uses atmospheric pressure to crush a 55-gallon steel drum. A link which I will put in the show notes. So, Brian, my geek hat is off to you. That is an amazing idea. That's a that's in order to save a twenty dollars shop vac, you're gonna buy uh, eighty dollars worth of tubing and three pressure valves and throw a tube over your roof. <laughs> I love you, man. That's awesome. That is pretty entertaining. Um. The other thing I would think, uh, you know, on a different, totally different note on this, but what would be uh, centrifugal force? Could you guys, would that work? Uh, probably. I've considered doing something like a solid spinner, uh, but I wonder uh, if that would be too harsh. Uh, and it, you, you have to have a much larger than filter media than just a regular coffee filter. So it brings up right. whole new things. But yeah, you're not the first person to mention that. 
uh, everybody jumps straight to centrifugal force. Um, and I like the idea of, of a giant steel vibrating drum about to uh, careen through my <laughs> windshield of my car uh, at any point. That's a, that's an appealing idea. Certainly more appealing than a $20 shop vac. Maybe oh, come on, yeah. Mark. You got to live dangerous. You know, I wonder if you could overcome the, the 40-foot distance limitation by simply coiling the tube. And so the increased um, length has it circled. I wonder if that could... No, because it's compensate. not about the volume of water; it's about the gravity, the the elevation drop. You need you need that much gravity. So if you have it coiled up in one plane, you're not using gravity. But the increased distance could increase the momentum and force generated by the falling water. Yeah, I think Just that's thought, crazy talk. So. I think that's gibberish. Of all the talk in the world, <laughs> crazy talk is some of my favorite, and that's right up there. <laughs> Uh, I, I, the reading Brian's email reminded me of a quote by Thomas Edison, where he said, "Several weeks in the lab can save at least ten minutes in the library," and uh, that's that's sort of the sort of the thing that that it reminded me of. Okay. Yeah, I tried to reinvent the wheel one time, but I just could never come up with the idea. So, <laughs> uh, square ones just don't work. Um, yeah. All right, so that's not all the listener feedback, but that's all I'm going to do uh, for tonight. And uh, we will move on to a few, because we've got so many of them, uh, tech news stories. I'm determined to keep this show short, people. I, I've got a timer, and I'm going to make it happen. I don't, and probably not, but it sounded good to say that. Um, hmm. uh, Seth wants to bring a public service announcement to you, a website called HaveIBeenPwned.com. I'm so happy yes. to say I have not been pwned. Yes, have I been pwned.com? Have I been pwned? Uh, you know, we've talked about the Adobe data breach, and that is probably the one that has received the most attention, but it is not the only one. And this one does like Stratfor, Gawker, Yahoo, Pixel, and Sony. Um, and you can just simply, you type in your email address, and then you click pwned, and then it will say, you know, like, no pwnage here, or, you know, yes, you've been pwned. Um, I, so I tried a few of my email addresses, and I was all, um, I was all good. No pwnage for me. So anyway, if you're wondering if all these data breaches have you, you know, have your, um, you know, knickers in an uproar, then you can go over to have I been pwned.com and see. So now you will know and knowing, as they say, like many other things is half, the, is battle. half the battle. Many things are half the battle. Losing is half the battle, Mr. Ness. Let's focus <laughs> on what is all the battle. Actually, it wasn't Mr. Ness. He's the one that said it. Uh, anyway, um, and just because we're a tech show, we have to talk about stupid copyrights again. And uh, the Google Oracle thing where, oh, by the way, I hope nobody fell for that stupid thing that, that said that Google pay, paid uh, um, Samsung in 17 truckloads worth of nickels. Did you guys see that story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. To total. While back. There aren't that many nickels that have ever been made. For one thing. <laughs> Secondly, yeah, anyway, moving right along. Uh, uh, the Oracle Google copyright thing is going to go to appeal again. Well, it's on appeal, or, you know, it has been appealed, and listening to the arguments, you know, this is, if you remember, we covered this before, the judge was like, you can't copyright APIs. I taught myself this thing last night, and I didn't know, and basically Google won, um, and then it's on appeal now. And during the course of the arguments, it seems like Oracle 
side is giving the better appeals. So there is a danger that that victory, which seemed to be a rare instance of common sense, um, seems to be in danger of getting overturned by the avalanche of uncommon sense that still runs rampant in our um, software. I don't want to say patent industry, but in our software intellectual property, um, a huge juggernaut of confusion that is moving forward. So, and, uh, so yeah, that's pretty much what's going on. In a related note, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Google won the uh, the open books uh, lawsuit. Yep, uh, which right. is of course now going to be p- appealed. Um, so none of this means anything until the final appeal. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm not going to do that one. Um, Valve. We got to talk about Valve. Valve <laughs> is now a member of the Linux Foundation. They're yep. serious about this Linux folk stuff. That's right. Yeah, it They're was uh, pushing hard. Yeah, you know, I mean, since their since their whole Steam box is running on Linux, they're just kind of realigning their, um, you know, they're just kind of hitching their wagon to the Linux thing and saying that you know we're going for it. So, I think it's cool. I can't wait to see what they bring to the table. I know they've been pushing hard on the video card developers to uh, increase performance in Linux for their video games. So um, I think it's just a good, a good, you know, motion forward. So. All right. And moving right along. Uh, I saw a funny cartoon about this just the other day. It says, uh, take a USB connector, plug it in. It doesn't fit. Flip it over. It doesn't fit. Flip it over again. Now it fits. How many times has that happened to you? Well, soon it's not going to matter. Oh, yeah, that's a USB. You know, there's the A and the B and the micro and the mini and the super mini and the ultra thin. Well, they're they're coming out with a USB type C plug that they claim will be reversible. So, you know, in in one sense, it's a good thing because all the USB ports are in the back of the computer and, you know, you can never see the back. So you sit back there then you break your motherboard and then you call somebody like me to come in and fix it um because you don't know how and you don't want to be messed with it but you know yay that there's a USB-C coming out uh it won't be compatible with the existing thing so it will be yet another problem. adapter that you will have to buy so i think it's i think that this is like newegg and amazon and tiger direct getting together and say hey y'all how can we squeeze some more money out of the computer guys and they say i know we'll make a new usb standard and i mean i'm being totally facetious but something like that maybe yeah the the frustrating thing about all this stuff is it's never backwards compatible one of the happiest days in my life okay that's an exaggeration but i was very happy when i found that all uh major u.s and european phone um manufacturers agreed to standardize on the micro usb for the charger what a happy day that was but it It was was also it also meant the end of business for lots of people who made uh multi-compatible chargers and you know those things with the, like spiders on the end where you could uh, plug into any phone you know those guys mm-hmm. all went away so yeah there's always that pressure the the people who make usb accessories 
uh, are jumping up and down about the fact to make another USB accessory. Yay, cool. But the rest of us are like, oh, I got to go buy another. So now I'm going to go buy a computer, and the guy at Best Buy is going to say, you know, you need a cable with that, right? And then you got to throw that in your drawer with your other cables because your printer may or may not have USB 3, or it might have one USB 2 port and one USB 3 port. And so you're plugging <laughs> the USB 2 port in the USB 3 thing, and then you end up snapping it off anyway. So you're not fixing the problem that you're supposed to fix. Yeah, it's I've got a USB 3.0 on my laptop, you know, the high-speed USB. I've still never right. found a device that actually can connect to it, ever. Or you end up with weird where it, it drops the connection. Right. It'll hold it, and then it'll drop it, and then hold it, and then drop it. Yeah. That's going to be the most frustrating thing in the planet. So that's, yeah, that's when you're plugging a USB 2 device into a USB 3 port. It doesn't always work. But I, I've never seen a USB 3 device. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. But I, I've never seen it. So now you've got USB 3.0, which is the standard, and then the USB 3 connector, but they're not the same thing. So you got to have your 3 connector, but it may not be – it may be a 2.0 connector, but not a 3 connector on your 3.0 device. you got a 2 con- – I'm confused. Now, you, now, Mark, you've seen a 3.0 connector on my thumbstick. See? 3.0. Oh, nice. You can tell because yeah. they're blue. That's how they yep. highlight them. And it is fast. When you're transferring a 3.0 jack into a 3.0 device, it's fast. Yeah, it's faster than FireWire. Oh, yeah, it's screaming. This is 64 gigabytes on the stick, and I can fill it in minutes or hours, less than hours. I just just want the day when we all have 500 gigabits wireless. That's what I want. Oh, that'd be nice. (laughs) And uh, so... You know, Netflix famously doesn't run on Linux, but Netflix themselves use BSD. Go to figure. How's that work? Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting <laughs> thing, um, and I wanted to share it with everyone. So now, you know, that tells you it's very, it should be very possible for them to run on Linux. They just don't want to do the whole uh, DRM thing. Exactly. So... Um, so That's all their servers, all they say that all their servers, all their backend stuff, they run on FreeBSD, which makes sense. Um, it's a, a yeah. you know a powerful, extensible operating system that doesn't cost anybody any money, and it doesn't have the somewhat egregious GPL license. Uh, it's got the BSD license, which is much more business friendly. Uh, so I, I, it makes sense. But we're crying out loud now. Now you won't even make a client that you could run on your own stuff. Uh, but it's all about the money. You can't right now. Oh, there's yeah. no DRM. There's no good DRM on Linux. Because the Linux guys don't like it, they don't like DRM. So until right. until Linux agrees to DRM, there will, there won't be a Netflix on Linux. That's my. So you that. just said there will never be a Netflix on Linux, Mark. That's what exactly. you just said. That's what I just said. Uh, I mean, that's it, sad. It, it'll be you know some hack running the Windows version in some sort of virtualized environment. They're just not going to be native uh, because they they don't want you copying that. Uh, you know that movie that you're streaming, but you could easily copy the DVD that they send you. So I don't really understand why that's even an issue. I mean, everybody yeah. can crack a DVD now. Even you know they try to make a Blu-ray is not so much. That's why everybody's trying to move to Blu-ray. It hasn't been cracked yet. Um, like your like your Disney movies, for example, you can't even buy a Disney movie on just DVD anymore. You get the D- yep. the DVD Blu-ray combo pack, and I suspect soon they're going to start trying to to not release them on DVD at all. 
Well, what happens, what they're doing now is they're like all the special features and you're getting a lot of bonus stuff right now nice. on the Blu-ray that you're not getting on the DVD. So the next step will be, uh, you know, some other step and then another step and then there's no more DVDs. So. Yeah. You want closed captioning. You got to use the, the Blu-ray. You want, right. uh, you know, you, you want anything like that. It could be. It's hard uh. to say. We'll soon see, I'm sure. So uh, the uh, the nuclear football is a, a, a thing that's the plot of many movies, a, a briefcase that the b- president carries chained to his, his wrist that with one push of the button could launch all the nuclear missiles. Turns out all we had to do was enter a bunch of zeros. Yeah, for over 20 years, the launch code, they said, was eight zeros. So zero, 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 zero. I mean, you know, which, wow, that's just kind of... I don't know, you know, if you were going to run some computer program to randomly crack it and, you know, you would probably start with zero, 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 zero and go to zero, 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 one, but you would do the first zero and throw it out and go, wait, no, this program's wrong. Somebody write another one. It's showing all zeros. That can't be it. (laughs) So, yeah, the idea is uh, these are in the nuclear silos themselves. You got to have two guys punch in codes. It's uh, Superman 3. Remember that terrible movie where they had to turn the two keys at the same time? Um, Right. uh, You know, that's that's what this is about is to make sure that one one crazy guy doesn't uh, launch a nuke. He's got to get the codes from the president. It turns out that code mm-hmm. was just zero. Well, from when I when I was reading this about the story, the the launch code was all zeros, but the arming of the nuke was right. a different code. So you could launch the missile, but you just wouldn't have a you know explosion. Yep. But the thing is, at the height of the Cold War, launching the missile even without a warhead would have been enough to cre- to, to cause a, a world war incident. Oh yeah, yeah, so because. Think- yeah, the Americans launched, so we're going to launch in retaliation. Yeah. We didn't know that their missiles weren't armed. So then, you know, all you have to do is launch one. The other side launches theirs, and then we launch all ours in retaliation. And, you know, granted, we could only blow up the world like five times, and they could blow it up ten times. So they would have destroyed the world more <laughs> thoroughly than we would have. But in the end, it would have all been destroyed. Yeah, I, I lived uh, within the blast radius of unknown target. It was a, a military um, contractor in a city not far from me, and they that was a known target, and I lived about 15 miles away from it. And so during that age, during the you know the pre-tear-down-this-wall uh, age, uh, I, I had a little bit of fear of the fact that someday the sky might flash red and I might be ev- evaporated. Yeah, but has that day really gone past too far? I mean, technically, we're still in that age. It's just not nuclear anymore. It's chemical or yeah. some sort of nerve agent. At least we don't. We're not telling our kids in school to duck and cover anymore. So we've. Well, yeah, but see, it. now you have. It's not so much enemy powers blowing up our defense industry. It's terrorists going after large groups of people. So since I live so far out in the yeah. country, I'm pretty safe. Mark, however is still in a high population center. Yeah, I'm very so near an love, Air Force base. Yeah. <laughs> you love the, uh, you must love that thrill of knowing <laughs> that, you know, any day somebody could be parking a van full of chemical weapons outside your door to kill you. Yeah, I, I live within 20 miles of the CDC. So uh, it's, oh. it's virus central. So nice. you're going to be the, the center of the 
the zombie apocalypse right. when it happens. The CDC awesome. actually has a zombie uh, pr- uh, disaster plan. It's it's a well known published plan for what the CDC is going to do in the event of a zombie out- outbreak. And well, you know that's it's really a great way for them to capitalize on the zombie mania because it's right. really a good general disaster plan. So, yeah. uh, uh, speaking of a general disaster. Windows 8.1 has been a general disaster, and now we have the numbers to back it up. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of numbers on this chart. I don't know what the best one to say is, except now that the humongous popularity that OS X 10.9 has generated means their market share has just now equaled to Windows 8. So, yay, Apple. Your, your desktop market. <laughs> You've almost got up to the crappiest version of Windows ever released. Um, congratulations. <laughs> you know, yay. Um, I, I don't really know what else to say about it. You know, I mean, cause otherwise we're just reading a bunch of numbers off the chart. Yeah. But, uh, I, I saw another one of those ads this week, uh, about some guy, uh, uh, dissing the Chromebook saying it's not a real laptop and he takes one out. Uh, you know, to an area that's not connected to anything outside with no Wi-Fi, no cellular, and shows it to people. And, and there's like, oh, look at this boat anchor. Look what a piece of crap this is. Really? So you're attacking the Chromebook. You, Microsoft, the mighty Microsoft, are attacking a device that has about 0.10% uh, market share. Really? Is that is that what it's come to? Well, they Pretty got much. no enough to kick yeah. around, so... It just it just made me sad. It was it's like I appreciate you being plucky, Microsoft, but Chromebook? That's your target? Chromebook? No no you are you are telling more people what a Chromebook is than actually knew what it was before. You are <laughs> advertising for the Chromebook. Well, but you see, this way, because of the and the licensing fees that they get off of the OS from all the patent trolls that they uh, own, <laughs> yeah, they're making money idea. that way. So, see, they're actually making money by getting everybody else to buy their junk. So, I, I don't know. It's, it's the best I can do. Yeah, and they, nice try. Well, come on, so, Mark. That was great transition. <laughs> this week in computer history, <laughs> something terrible happened. Not really. No, um, Frederick Williams receives a patent for a RAM device December 11th, 1946. A patent is issued for Sir Frederick Williams. He's from Britain, so there's a lot of sirs over there. Device for random access memory. The Williams tube was a modified cathode ray tube that painted dots and dashes of phosphorescent electrical charge on a screen representing binary ones and zeros. It became the primary memory for vacuum tube machines such as the IBM 701. Williams developed his device at Manchester University. So there you go, uh, Element Opiates, your weekly history lesson right here. December 11th, 1946. And by the way, in case you were wondering, that's a patent I have absolutely no problem with. That is a hardware patent. He created a device. That's what patents are supposed to be for. He didn't yep. create a generic sort of thing that says a software method for calculating numbers. And the patent office went, okay, sounds good to me. So that's the sort of stuff that should be patented. A freaking modified cathode ray tube that does digital Morse code in a vacuum tube. That's something deserving of a patent. And that's cool. Yes. 
Yeah. No prior art there. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Now, enough of our uh, news stories, enough of our listener feedback. Let's get on to an ad. I know that's what you really tune into this show for, the ads. <laughs> uh, and this week, once again, we have uh, our good friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com sponsoring us. What is the Linux Academy, you might say? Well, Chris is going to tell you. Well, the Linux Academy is a place that you can find step-by-step video courses for somebody who has no idea what Linux is. Um, they give you a Linux server that you can play with up on the Amazon EC2. I think it's EC2. Is it EC2, guys? I don't remember. I believe so. <laughs> sure. Okay. Elastic anyway, computing. Yeah. The elastic cloud. Eh, maybe it is EC2. But anyway, um, they give you all lots of different things like PDF study guides and reference sheets and training videos that would blow your mind that you will learn lots of about Linux. So come learn a lesson browser to watch, to, to track where you're going. And so you can allocate your learnings so you can practice, um, for tests and different quizzes. The, uh, he just started something called Linux Academy for Teams that's been around for a little bit, I guess now. Um, that is for groups of people. If you want to try and like teach a class or your, uh, co-workers or different things like that they offer a dvd for offline viewing in case you're a bandwidth impaired person like seth so all that amazing stuff dvds and and pdfs and and videos over 200 videos all in this amazing control panel that you can can uh, track all your lessons all of that has got to be really expensive seth how much does it cost for this amazing uh this amazing experience that is the linux academy well, you would like to think it was 1995, but you would be wrong because you can give it a 14-day test drive for $1. You know, why $1? Because, you know, you've got to show that you might at least want to buy it. But if you're serious about learning, this $1 will be the greatest investment of your life because you will get hooked and you will realize how much there is to know and what a great job they are doing that you will then turn around and gladly spend the $19 a month. And it's it gets even better than that because if you want to get a whole quarter, three months of access, you'll get one free. So $38 for a quarter. Um $39 for a quarter and two weeks. All you have to do is use the code Everyday Linux when you sign up to let them know that you heard about it from us. And you can go from a command line newbie to a, or a, to a command line user. Um, you know, it takes a while to reach Godfather status, but you can, you know, <laughs> not be afraid. And, you know, I will never like Vim or Vi, but you can learn how to use them and not be terrified and just you know, general flick your nose in disdain, but not in fear. So um, it's a great thing. You know what the thing. coolest thing the Linux Academy does on a regular basis? What? They send me a check. And so we thank you for that, for supporting this show, for helping uh, keep us on the air, guys. Not only do you provide a great service and uh, and at a, an incredibly reasonable price, but you also support a podcast that a few people seem to like. So thanks for that. And uh, guys, great great job on the, uh, the uh, pull the rug out from under your ad read. No problem, you. you know. And I actually will say something just off off the cuff here that um, nobody else knew about. But at my little conference, when people were talking about Linux, I pointed them all at Linux Academy because I know it's a place that's going to give them good information and not you know drag them around by the nose and drain every dime out of their wallet. So uh, Linux Academy is a place where you can definitely learn what you need to learn 
for a a budget price. It's it's a full fleet full uh full suite for budget price or Cadillac for a Toyota price. It's 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 Cadillac for baloney price is what it is. It's <laughs> I mean it's um nineteen bucks a month and not only that I mean really thirty eight dollars a quarter. Uh, what is that ten dollars and to twelve fifty um a month somewhere around like there that. um yeah <laughs> that's yeah. cheap twelve sixty six twelve sixty six thank you seth uh my my number sense math there um uh, got me close uh for for twelve dollars and sixty six cents a month what what do you that's two starbucks a month that's, I mean, uh, I feel like Sally Struthers. For just the cost of a cup of coffee a day, you can have Linux learning. Um, but that yeah, was horrible. You'll make and it funny. <laughs> that was awesome. That was a horrible. That was awesome. But you can make that back. You can, you know, here's the deal. You can get some distro like Ubuntu that's very uh graphically oriented for the end user and you can install it and you can use it because it's point and click or touch and drag um click and drag but if you want to get a job in the linux you know supporting linux in the back office you need to know how to go to the command line and you need to know how to schedule tasks and edit jobs and files via the command line and that's really what you're going to get um going through the linux academy so you know you can give up a pizza this month and a pizza next month and a pizza the month after that then you can have pizza seven days a week because you'll be able to afford it with your new job <laughs> there you go I like it. That's one way to look at it. All right, so let's move on. Uh, Seth found a, a couple of things that in his news roundup uh, that took us down the road of net neutrality. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's not going to be a long discussion uh, because really there's there's not a lot to say about it. But it's 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 an important thing that even geeks don't understand. Uh, so before we get into the articles, let me give just a rough synopsis of what net neutrality is. First off, it's a terrible name. Net neutrality. It's a terrible name. It, there needs to be a better name for it. Um, but it's, uh, to put it simply, it's whatever is connected to the internet, whatever that connected device is pulling down, uh, wherever it's pulling it down from, should be treated identically across the board. That's net neutrality. So I'm not going to, as an ISP, look and see what device is connecting to me and say, if you've got a Roku, I'm going to charge you a fee for Roku. And I'm not going to say if you're uh, downloading torrents, I'm going to charge you a fee for extra fee for torrents. And I'm not going to say if you're trying to run a server, by the way, which is a very common practice uh, that servers cost more, cost a business plan, um, uh, you should pay more. Net neutrality in its truest sense is is bits is bits. What's ever going across the wire is what's going across the wire, and it doesn't matter. Um, it's not in the u.s the law of the land there aren't any direct laws about net neutrality the fcc the federal communication commission who is sort of in charge of the internet but not really because you know the internet is such a global thing but it's sort of in charge of the way we do things in the u.s has some guidelines some guidelines they expect people to follow but they're not rules and they're not binding but the FCC has a couple of times flexed their muscle and said, what you're doing violates our openness standard. Um, you need to knock it off. But they didn't really have the teeth to back it up. They just made a big stink about it. Um, so there's there's a quick um, 
summary of what net neutrality is. And what what got us to thinking about uh, this is this Ars Technica uh, article uh, where the the FCC uh, says that... uh, that they that ISPs are wanting to set up uh, what they're calling a, a an, an internet fast lane, um, and they want to charge extra for people who want to stream uh, movies, for example, for want Netflix. So here's the crazy situation. Let, let's look at it like the road system. Okay, it's not a really good analogy, but it's 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 close enough. So you got toll roads, right? Toll roads let you get uh, through areas of heavy traffic faster, in theory. But what happens is that everybody who uh, wants to get through this area faster takes the toll road. Therefore, the toll road is now over capacity and every bit as slow as the free road. But you're still paying a fee. So every car that goes on it pays for the toll, but it's not really doing anybody any good. Um, Not only that, but when you have to stop at the toll booth, it slows you down even more. So yeah. that the plan is for ISPs to charge uh, uh, for a toll road. They want a high, an HOV lane on the internet, and they want to say if you want um, uh, to stream Netflix or to to torrent, we will give you a special pipe set aside, and you will pay us extra for this pipe. But you're already paying them a fee. You're paying them your monthly fee. Not only that, but the the Netflix is paying to to have their connection. So they've got their big you know, whatever, multiple DS3 connections, they're paying for that. And so, you know, Comcast and others like them want to to triple dip. They're already double dipping. They're paying at both ends of the connection. They're paying for the sender and the receiver. And now they want to charge Netflix an extra to have their stuff go down the, the, the toll road. And they want to pay the end user extra to be able to access the toll road. So they want to quadruple dip on the same bits that are running across the same pipes. And some people that's think crap. that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that the person who is now the head of the FCC used to be one of the highest paid lobbyists of the, you know, ISP such as uh, AT&T and Verizon. So that's who is in charge of the government agency now. Somebody who used to be a lobbyist on behalf of ISP such as AT&T and Verizon. So of course he's going to leave that lobbying behind him and be fair and impartial now. And actually he's already made several speeches that while he hasn't gone against the FCC's official stance of net neutrality um, in his speeches and talks, he has advocated the very opposite of net neutrality while claiming not to violate it. Um, so thank you. Politicking. So what's important here to remember is that when, when Comcast wants to do this, this thing, this, this quadruple dipping I talked about, it's not illegal. It's contrary to guidelines. And so there are people yep. like the 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 uh, Electronic Frontiers Foundation, for example, who are trying to lobby to make it illegal. They want the internet to stay open, um, but very few people who make money off the internet think this is a good idea. I mean, if you make your money off of selling uh, bandwidth, you don't want for any laws to be passed that make it more difficult for you to charge money for bandwidth. Um, and you know, for, okay, let's, let's go one, uh, other farther here. Uh, Verizon, for example, is, is somewhat notorious for deciding that certain devices won't be able to connect to their network. They have a, 
what do they call that? An authentication, not an a certification process that they have to go through. And if you own, for example, a, a Nexus Seven LTE device, you're you're gonna you're not gonna be able to put that on Verizon because they haven't gone through the certification process yet. Now the Nexus Seven's been out a long time, and uh, yeah. if they don't want a device to be on their network, they'll just slow the certification process down. Um, which is, you know, not technically illegal because they're not saying no. They're just saying, well, we haven't certified it yet. And if we happen to wait so long that that device is now three generations out before we certify it, well, so be it. And that's crap. <laughs> well, well it's but like Chris, the old man you would not the want them to put a device on the network that is incompatible with the network and would crawl, um, crash it and congest it so that their other users wouldn't then not be able to get the services that they are provided don't you care about everyone else chris are you a hog do you hate children are you a communist well if they're having that much problems with their network it's a simple thing called repair and replace your network just thinking but you know well, I'm just saying you've got to test and make sure that there are no hardware incompatibilities because sometimes <laughs> you can follow the spec and you can follow it right, but your hardware is not compatible with somebody else's hardware who followed the spec right. And if you're going to let something on your network, you can't just let anything on your network. You've got to make sure it's compatible with the network. Okay, but I thought we had industry standards for that. <laughs> well, exactly. That's the thing. If it's an LTE certified device... And you're an LTE it's, network provider. Yep. You, you're you're certified. already certified. Why do you have to go through a certifi certification process? A but, recertification. You know, exactly. <laughs> uh, AT&T does the same thing. You know, I, like AT&T has their, um, uh, I, I've talked about it before, on every phone that comes through AT&T that you buy from AT&T, it preferentially seeks out AT&T public Wi-Fi hotspots at places like uh, uh, McDonald's and uh, uh, Starbucks. And that's because they want you off of their network. And rather than build out their network and actually make it robust, they put this piece of software on the phone that uh, makes you jump off of their network. <laughs> that's that's kind of a crazy thing. And those are the sorts of things that um, that people are fighting against. There's another article that Seth came up with about how uh, YouTube uh, is made slower intentionally by network providers. Of course, nobody can actually prove this, but that's what the theory is. Yeah, and and it's one of those things. It has happened, and it has come to light in the past, and usually they've kind of taken a gentleman's agreement where they don't talk about their dirty laundry when they're arguing over fees. But it's one of those, you know, Google... And this is a way, you know, I have a very tiny amount of insight into this. I used to work for an ISP, um, a regional ISP uh, in the East Texas area. And one of the big announcements that came through just before I left is that Netflix had agreed to put one of their caching systems, I don't remember the technical name, inside this ISP's company's network so you weren't leaving their network to watch netflix and so it's a win-win for them because now they don't have to they don't have to buy content from 
Um, you know, there's, if you think of like the tier one providers and they're kind of like the toll ways of the internet, if you can keep everything on your network, you don't have to access them. So you're not being, you're not being charged toll for that data and your customers get it faster. So, um, and it costs money for Netflix to put it there. So Netflix, in addition to where you can stream stuff from anywhere on the internet, they pay money to put it on the ISP's internet. And then the ISP wants to charge them yet again to guarantee guarantee certain access speeds. So, you know, it's lots of double and triple dipping on each end there. And, but they're very tight lipped about it. You know, I'm sure if you're in America, you remember that because it, it was all over the news that I believe it was uh, AT&T or Comcast blocked CBS because CBS didn't want to pay the amount of money that they were demanding and you know CBS took a hit in ratings but the other company hemorrhage subscribers i think it was comcast yep. or time warner I, I can't remember it was but time warner it was time warner and so you know the same thing kind of happens in the net the internet backbone but they're just they're quieter about it and they don't feud where everybody can hear them yeah so, well let's let's talk about that event that you're talking about cuz it's it's happened before like uh, uh recently AMC was fighting with uh with DirecTV and uh, right. they, uh, yep. you know, the Walking Dead wasn't going to be available to millions of subscribers. But in this particular instance that you're talking about, Seth, not only did they take CBS uh, and MTV and and uh, other CBS owned things off of their channels, but they blocked their websites, so you couldn't go to CBS.com, hmm. and that's what really made people mad. So it's one thing to say I'm not going to uh, carry this as a channel on my system; it's another to actively inhibit somebody from accessing it another way so they didn't want yeah. people to go online because uh cbs I, i'm pretty sure i'm remembering the details of this right it, it, i may be putting two stories together but basically they said all right well until we get this resolved we're just going to stream stuff online um and you know they do that now it's actually pretty common practice now for you to be able to, to download whole shows of things but at, at the time that wasn't the common practice so they said all right, right. we'll just put it on our website so the but the ISP said, well, screw you. you. None of our customers can get to your website, and it wasn't a you know four hundred four error not found. It was just some weird uh, accidental DNS issue. Well, we're we're having trouble resolving that page right now, so we'll yeah. we'll get back to you a little or later. Keep checking the, back. Yeah, they took a page out of your book and they didn't, they just throttled it down. So like 1K is getting through their entire yeah. network and one person is able to pull up the main page. Um, you know, so it's getting through. It's just, I don't know why you're not getting a fast speed. Um, uh, try what, refreshing your browser. What he means by a page out of my book there is, is when I worked, uh, in schools, I didn't block things like Facebook and YouTube and whatever. I just used bandwidth shaping and gave, uh, a thousand users a one megabit path. And so if they absolutely had to have it, they could get to it. They just had to be very patient. Uh, and that was the way I, instead of outright blocking it, I just made it very painful for them to use. And so that's what he means by a play out of my book. Yeah. Uh, so this, this net neutrality thing, it's a big deal to everybody who uses the internet, but only geeks like us know about it. So I, th we're talking to the audience who's most likely already in on this. Right. Uh, but the, probably already have an opinion on it too. Right. The problem is that it's, it's you know it's, it's hard to there aren't any laws about it because it's hard to write a law. I I, I always get frustrated when politicians try to legislate technology 
because by the time they like there's there are laws on the books right now that talk talk about the mimeograph for example the uh, digital millennium copyright act of 1994 actually mentions the device known as a mimeograph how many people in our audience even know what a mimeograph is right if you right. when you were a kid in school like chris i bet you don't know what a mimeograph is have you ever had the purple copy sheet paper that you put up to your nose because it smelled good no yeah you didn't have that experience and you're just a few years younger than i am but when i was in elementary school there was there was the copy machine the xerox machine to use a, a brand name yep. and then the mimeograph machine and it was a, a a hand crank or actually they later got up to an automatic device uh that runs things through this purple fluid it's never really black it's kind of a deep purple uh and the it's a transfer device it was cheaper than a than a standard laser copier device uh and you could crank out thousands of pages in a short period of time and then they would come to you and they'd still be a little bit damp and they smelled a little bit like developer fluid and so every mm -hmm. kid as soon as they'd be passing the thing uh, back down the page would stick it up to the nose and and because it smelled it wasn't a good smell but it wasn't a bad smell it was just it was it would give you just a little tiny little bit of a buzz um but you know now now this audience doesn't know what that is one of the hosts 33 percent of the hosts on this show don't even know what i'm talking about but it's immortalized in the law that is the law of the land today so that's the problem with with 60-year-old politicians writing laws about technology. So I'm not inclined to say, let's we need more laws. Uh, but on the other hand, how are you going to resolve this issue? You already have, quote-unquote, guidelines that people are ignoring. You already have people making backroom deals just to get stuff. I mean, YouTube has to pay these guys off. It's extortion money. But if they want their service uh, to function for people, they have to pay for it. So how do you do it without legislation when you know that legislation is never the answer? Well, one of the things is the ISPs have a really good deal and there's so little competition. Exactly. Um, there's a large segment of the country that to get what's true broadband speeds, you have one and only one choice. And so, you know, this really isn't as big a deal in places like Europe where there's a lot more competition to the desktop because if, if company A want, says, Hey, if, you know, if you want to be able to run uTorrent on your machine or, or, you know, the, if you want to be able to run torrents and download torrents off the internet and you don't want to be throttled to 0.1k a day, you know, it's going to be an extra 25 bucks for the super expressway pack well if company a is your only option then you either have but suppose company b says no you're paying for the internet you can get all the internet um everybody's going to go with company b and company a will soon be out of business so they will have to adjust their strategy but in the u.s we don't have the luxury of competition you know we're, we're scrounging for the leftovers that the monopolies want to give us and so i know it's like i know you paid for this 15 megs and you know you pay 100 bucks a month or whatever but if you want me to guarantee the 15 megs you've already paid for that'll be an extra 50 bucks a month um, right. And if you wanted me to guarantee the 15 megs in this one particular application, well, I'll cut you a deal and there'll only be an extra, extra $10 for that application. Um, so, you know, you're paying two and three and four times for something you've already paid for. I mean, that's ridiculous. And, you know, it would be called extortion unless it's an ISP doing it. Then that's called yeah. the in business. Which Good is why, for them. which is why Google has all these bandwidth initiatives, right? They've got the Loon project, they've got the the gigabit uh, uh, internet project. They're trying to bypass all this and say we're a content provider. We're just going to pay for the pipes too. 
Um, and I, I don't know if it's going to work, but they're they're giving it a good try. And and when they own everything, you know, then it's the company store thing, right? We we own the connection and the content, and we can do whatever we want to with it. Does that well, make they've them- already they're already doing that where they've done Google Fiber. You know, the the whole you can't run a server, which they've since modified and said you right. can't run a business off of it. Well, I mean. You know, did somebody, did somebody put out the, the wrong document or did they just put out version five of the document and they should have only right. put out version one? You so know, the real question is, good- does that make them more or less dangerous when they own the pipes and provide the content? You know, does that make them magnanimous or, or maleficent? There's, there's almost no way to know. I struggled hard to find two M words there and it, <laughs> I just want to point that out. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's difficult to know whether it's going to be a good thing until we try it. We know what we have right now isn't working as well as we'd like. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier uh, on the show, I think maybe before we started record, recording, I have two provider options for bandwidth here. One of them provides me great high-speed bandwidth that's not reliable. The other one provides me really reliable uh, bandwidth that's lower speed. Those are my two choices. Both of them suck. Really? Yeah. I mean, this is America. <laughs> this is this is a first world uh, nation in 2013, almost 2014. I should have choices, but I don't. And it's because you know it's it's money and backroom deals and the fact that you know uh, that those two things one comes over cable, one comes over copper. Those are the two companies that took the time to run copper uh, uh excuse me i said cable and copper copper cable and phone line those are the two companies that took the time to run copper to my house so google they're they're saying fine we'll screw that we're just we'll just run our own line but that's what it's going to take you either use the lines that somebody's already run or you run your own lines um and the, or you could go wireless but right that's still fraught with problems right now uh 4g is is pretty good ymax is pretty good but they both break under large scale uses and they're not as um secure because you're you have a shared access point so right now there's just not a good solution and i think google is just saying fine we'll just dig our own cable fine we'll do it our way um and uh verizon tried that with their files initiative and eventually couldn't support it and they only did it in i think 10 cities and then stopped because it was too expensive they weren't seeing the the uh the benefits uh to it but i you know i I had a friend in the dallas area that had fios fiber to his house he got like 116 megabits down and like 30 up that's pretty amazing and his cost was only like 30 bucks a month um so you know you you there's when you drop when you run a whole new infrastructure you can do stuff like that but that's what it's going to take you guys all all suck by the way (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm complaining that i you know only get 1.5 1.5 up and Chris is barely squeaking out 0.5 up. Yeah. Actually not even 0.5. Well, I'm getting a little over 0.5 at the moment. Um but yeah, it's it's 7 something 0.738 megabits. So it's it's not even a full meg meg up. But I am getting 12 down out of the 15 that I'm told I uh, the 13 I'm told I'll get. No, it's up 12. Two. It's up 2. Those words are always yeah. there. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know cry me a river, there. Chris. Cry me a river. <laughs> uh, okay, so I. But how many choices? When you have what two choices, Seth? There or just one? I have satellite. I have dial up. I have um, wireless. Y Max. Those are my three choices. 
So I have one choice. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I have the the choices I have are are DSL or cable. Yeah. And the DSL is unmetered, which is what I have right now. It's an unmetered connection. The cable, which is a little bit faster for both up and down, um, but is metered at 300 gigabytes. You know how really? fast I blow through 300 gigabytes? It's not yeah, even. A, it's river. not even a choice then. <laughs> Well, I have DSL or cable to choose from. <laughs> and see, I never understood. Uh, but we're, they're we're slow. Totally getting, we're totally getting off the net neutrality thing here, but I never understood paying uh, metering. Because when you're a bandwidth provider, the number of bits you download are irrelevant. It's how many people are pulling bits at the same time. So you look at your capacity, you look at your customers, and you tier it, and you say, I'm going to make it prohibitively, uh, pro- prohibitively expensive. I'm going to make it cost a lot to uh, to download large amounts of data. But if you're willing to pay it, have at it. That's tiering. You can get the, the 10 megabit bundle. You can get the 20 megabit bundle. You can get the 100 megabit bundle. But when they do that, nobody buys it. Everybody got, buys the cheap bundle and then complains they can't get it. So then they do this uh, metering thing. Everybody gets 50 megabits, but you don't really get 50. You only get it for a short time. Then none of that makes any sense to me. You're you're charging for a commodity which is infinite. Bits are infinite. And okay, Mark. you're not charging for the commodity which is finite, which is bandwidth. Yeah, now that makes sense, right? Well, what you just explained should make sense. But the people that do the local telco that does the, the, the metered connection also tiers. So it's tiered so you, and metered. It's tiered and metered, and it, do the meter the the meter doesn't change. So if you wanted to pay for the twenty meg down and the ten meg up or whatever their high end connection is, you're still capped at three hundred gigs. <laughs> and when you when you go over that, it, you better get out the big checkbook because it's going to cost you some pretty pennies. So really, they're just charging you more money to to get to your cap faster. Awesome. Yeah. Pretty much. Isn't that great? Hence the reason I left them. Yeah. I saw the writing on the wall. One of their uh, employees that I will never name said that if, I, if I'm if i a big bandwidth user, to disappear and leave their connection. <laughs> and so I did. I've, I've never needed my bandwidth. I wouldn't be able to do the show. I don't know what my bandwidth is, but I'm sure it's it's a crap ton. I mean, on my phone which I don't use that much, I burn through five gigabits a month. So, you know, at, at home, I can't even think about it. Uh, with with the Netflix and the Hulu and, and, and all that stuff going on and Pandora running 24-7 on three tablets, and, you know, I, I don't even want to think about what that is. Uh, you should uh, do it once. Yeah. It'd be interesting just to hear what you burn through in a day. <laughs> yeah, just, just downloading podcasts. I'm probably going through a gig a week just in podcasts. Uh, anyway. So but see, all of this ties into the net neutrality because, yes. you know, I either have to pay money to use the things I want or I have this Internet. You know, it would be like if all of a sudden Texas said, OK, the, the interstates are only for makers or only for like Chevys and Fords. If you have a Nissan, you have to buy a special permit or you're stuck to the state system or something like that. I mean, that that you might say that's a stupid analogy, but that's the best way. That's the best analogy. You're like, I already right. pay taxes. My taxes built your road. I shouldn't have to then turn around and pay another tax because I have a different car than somebody else, you know, or they say, you know, 
you can drive however fast you want to, but if you drive 70, we're going to charge you one speed. Well, we kind of have that with speeding tickets, so never mind. That's, <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> a, a speeding ticket is just pay to drive faster. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's net neutrality. It's tearing. <laughs> if you're driving 40 miles over the speed limit, that's one tier. If you're driving 60 over the speed limit, that's another tier. If you're driving 70 over the, over the speed limit, that's jail. Uh, yeah, we have the special place for the for the uh, bandwidth abusers to go. With free food and board. It's, it's a pretty good deal. Um, okay. Uh, I, I hope this was an interesting discussion to you. Um, and I don't know that we, you know, we didn't break any ground here. We didn't tell you anything that nobody already knows or that, that other people don't already know. But it's... Um, it's an interesting thing to think about that people don't think about. Uh, you you just you just think that this is how my bandwidth comes to me, or or you know if you're buying a cell phone, I mean that neutrality comes into that big time, right? Uh, if for years if you wanted to buy an iPhone, you had to buy it through AT and T. Technically, that violates net neutrality. Um, yeah. You know because it's it's not sure maybe AT and T is the only one selling it, but if I get one from um, you know eBay or by somebody buys one and gives it to me uh now I should be able to take it to uh, to T-Mobile cuz it's a 3G and that's just the way it should be but th- no it was locked uh so you get into these bootload lockers things that we were talking about so that's that's a violation of net neutrality in fact the FCC is has uh sort of spanked a few people a, a few times about that because while they can't while they can't technically pass any laws they can pull people people's license and say you're, yep. you know, you're not playing nice. You no longer have the right to transmit on public uh, airwaves or or to use public uh, pipelines, and that <laughs> that gets people's attention. So right. the you know net neutrality is all around you, or the lack of net neutrality. You just may not realize. Anytime you're complaining about the fact that you can't use the phone you want on the carrier want you want, that's a net neutrality issue. Um, anytime you complain that you know your your bandwidth that you only have one internet provider and you don't like him, that's a net neutrality issue. Um, and we just the way I see it, we just need to figure out what the law is, say what it is, and deal with it. If if enough people in this country ratify a uh, um, a law that says we're anti net neutrality and we're going to have these rules. You know, I wouldn't like it, but I'd, I'd be okay with it. It's the ambiguousness that I don't like about it, the ambiguity that that we have guidelines, but there's no real teeth behind them. Um, yeah. And and, and they, they, I'm, I'm only talking about U.S. because that's all I know. I know that in, in the rest of the world, uh, Europe uh, uh, has laws about this sort of thing, and I think – Australia, maybe I, I did some some cursory research on this. There are countries that have put net neutrality into place, or have said we're not net neutral, um, and you know th- they are what they are. But here in the U.S., we're kind of caught in, in this gay, gray zone that I call the chaotic neutral. We're neither neutral nor uh, not neutral. We're just somewhere in between. We're free flowing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I think we've beaten that horse. It is sufficiently dead. And so now awesome. let's move on to our link of the week. Seth, I love this one. I've seen this one before. Uh, what is your link this week? Well, I just want to say that, you know, superheroes, they have regular lives, too. And they're not all perfect people. They have issues. And so go check out supernockedup.com. It is a, um, it's a web 
show thing, you know, think, think YouTube series. Um, you can find the videos on YouTube, but it's also here. They're actually comic book as well. Um, some adult humor, you know, there's no nudity in these, Darn at it. least not through the first ones that I've seen. Uh, but you know, think of, think kind of like, uh, middle school age, uh, bathroom humor level, you know, so th- there's some, there's some innuendo and some, things that people will laugh at but you know you might not admit to other people that you laugh at so supernocked.com um i came across this website uh i found a magazine called geek uh just called geek while i was getting my uh getting a, a car fixed uh in the in the store and it it mentioned here so i checked it out it's pretty funny stuff. So, uh, you know, basically this, uh, superhero who's a womanizer, uh, has a one night stand with this supervillain who is a super hot chick and come to find out she's pregnant. And then, so, you know, it's their, you know, they go from a one night stand to they're going to keep the baby and kind of anyway, it's just funny stuff. Uh, supernockedup.com, all one word. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And it didn't have anything to do with bacon this time. So those of you who say there's too much bacon, <sighs> who what am I kidding? Nobody ever says there's too much bacon. Right. I think that's impossible just no. to have too much bacon. We actually it, it, the amazing thing happened. We actually had leftover bacon in our house the other day. It it was only what? like four slices, but I just, it was phenomenal, right? It was like we all had had all the bacon we wanted. It 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 can be done. I didn't think it was possible, but it actually happened. The next day it was gone. It didn't last long, but we had extra <laughs> right. bacon for the first time. No, you had just pre-cooked. You didn't have extra, Mark. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you had simply pre-cooked it for the next meal. That's funny. Like you never have bacon. extra bacon. Um, yeah, so I, I came home and made myself a sandwich, a turkey sandwich with like six slices of bacon on it, the slices that were left over. And um, then like 10 minutes later, my daughter comes in and says, we still have any of that bacon left over? Um, no, um, I'm, it's all gone. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> I think mom ate it. Yeah, uh, that didn't work, did it? <laughs> all right, so if you would like to weigh in on net neutrality or anything else for that matter, if you have a question, a comment, or just something silly to say, the place to do that is uh, over at elementop.com. Click on the Contact Us button. You'll get a nice little web form that will send me an email, and I will read it, and I will laugh at it, and I will pass it around to others, and uh, and and we'll read it on the show most likely. You know, And uh, if you've got an insult, too, uh, I don't know what other shows do, but I know we've always uh, been willing to air our dirty laundry here. If you got a complaint, um, that's okay, too. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll put it out there. Uh, because that's just how we roll. We're listener, a listener programmed radio, as I like to say. Also, if you want to uh, be on in a, in a more tangible way, you could uh, use our Google Voice hotline. There's a widget right there at the top of our page. Or uh, just pick up your phone anywhere in uh, the North America, Canada, Mexico landmass area uh, and dial 559-IAM-OP, and you can leave us a message there. Or if you're outside the U.S., you just want to uh, record something, uh, send me a wave file or an MP3 or whatever. Don't make it a wave. It's too big. Um, uh, we'll, we'll put that on there. So there's all kinds of ways that you could contact us all. Also, don't forget the forums, the uh, the coffee forums, the uh, the bad movie forums. We have we've been a little derelict in our bad movie talk uh, recently. In fact, Seth had something in the the notes this week that I glossed over. So maybe we'll catch that next week because we're we're a little derelict in our in our bad movie uh, talk here. Because this show again, not about Linux, about life. 
in the context of Linux. Speaking of bad movies and Linux, everybody remember that show Electric Dreams back in the 80s? A guy buys a computer <laughs> that f- uh, falls in love with his girlfriend? Go check it out. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Uh, there's an REM song at the end of it. This one goes out to the one I love. And then, well, I won't tell you the end because it's mildly heartwarming, so I'm not going to say anything. But anyway, <laughs> so is all those ways. <laughs> all those ways are how you can contact us, and we appreciate you doing it. We thank you for being listeners, and if you like the show, and you wouldn't be listening if you didn't like the show, go uh, hop over to iTunes, give us a rating and review, and better yet, just tell everybody you know. Crank it, crank it up at work, turn it up really loud, and make them listen to the show. That's a good way to make friends. Um, That'll work, can, yeah. Uh, and uh, as always, Chris, Seth, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being the best hosts that I could afford uh, on your salaries. And uh, and with uh, without anything else to say, I guess I'll say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Oh.